Good morning. Again, you all are getting really practiced at that, aren't you? That good morning thing. So I am Tom Warner. I'm one of the elders here at Green Tree Community Church. And um, I hope you're passing a good summer, that you're getting some R&R. As of today, it feels like part of the summer, a significant part is in the rearview mirror. Fourth of July has come and gone. The All-Star Game has come, come and gone. We are in the fourth uh, sermon message this morning of a total of eight in our summer series, which is on the kings of Israel. This morning, we're going to talk about King Yehu, who is, whose story is told in Second Kings. And I'll just give you a few words that sort of describe what I see of him in Scripture. King Yehu, I think on the positive side, was courageous. He was a man certainly who was single-minded. Yehu was a man who was responsive to God. Some people would say about King Yehu that he was not just single-minded, he was pig-headed. He was a man who was unyielding, uh, perhaps bloodthirsty, but he was definitely God's man for the hour. So here is our sermon in a sentence this morning. The story of King Yehu requires us to assess the priorities of our hearts and discard the idols that threaten our peace, our relationships, and our well-being. So let me pray for us, and we'll dive into the Scripture. Lord, we come to your word this morning for wisdom. As we read of the kings of Israel, we are reminded that we are in some ways very far removed from them, removed in culture, removed in time and distance, and yet there is much that we have in common because of our shared humanity. And so as we read this morning your words of your kindness, your goodness to the people of Scripture, we pray that we would be reminded of your kindness and your goodness to us as well. And we pray in your name. Amen. The young man was an Israelite and a prophet, and he was clearly nervous. He stood before a group of men who were much older and much tougher than he thought he could ever be. His eyes shifted from one to another, wondering which one he was supposed to talk to and how he would get started getting the words out for the message that he had to deliver. In the back of his mind, he wondered at the chain of events that had brought him to the point that he was to deliver the message that he was about to give. Yesterday, the prophet Elisha had called him and had said, I have a job for you. Take this flask and go to the town of Ramoth Gilead. And when you get there, find Yehu, the son of Nimshi. Take him away from everyone else and give him this message. And then Elisha had told him the message that he was to deliver. And the last part of the instruction that Elisha gave to the young prophet was peculiar. He said, when you have delivered the message, run. <laughs> run away as fast as you can. Don't delay, just run. And so the young man had reason to be nervous. He knew that the message he was about to deliver would start terrible things. He knew that the message would change lives of the people of his troubled nation. The troubles in Israel started generations before. 
If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that the people of Israel and the kings of Israel had problems remaining faithful to the God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Two weeks ago, Daryl Mady talked about King Jeroboam. For political reasons, King Jeroboam erected golden calves for the people of Israel to worship instead of worshiping the God of Israel. Last week, Corbett Heimberger told us that Israel's problems got even worse when King Ahab married a woman named Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel were a terrible duo who brought all kinds of evil to the nation. They worshiped a god called Baal, who was a fertility god. By the time of this week's events, King Ahab had died, but Jezebel still lived. And one of the sons of Ahab and Jezebel, a man named Joram, succeeded Ahab to the throne as king of Israel. You also remember that Israel had split into two pieces, Israel on the north and Judah on the south, and each had their own king. Now, a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel married a man named Ahaziah, and Ahaziah became the king of Judah so that both kingdoms were now in the hands of this perverse family. The two new kings also worshipped Baal, and they were just as bad as Ahab and Jezebel. As our story opens, King Joram had been wounded in a battle with the Syrians, and King Ahaziah had gone to visit Joram. There were also others in the kingdom who worshipped Baal and continued in the evil path of Ahab and Jezebel, and these included first the sons of Joram and Ahaziah, so now the grandsons of Ahab and Jezebel, and there were scores, perhaps even hundreds of these sons, and there were scores of priests who led the worship of Baal under the direction of Jezebel. So now the young man was at the headquarters of the army searching out Yehu, and we read this in 2 Kings 9. When he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together. I have a message for the commander, he said. Yehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil, that was from the flask that Elisha had given him, poured the oil on Yehu's head and declared, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab. The whole house of Ahab will perish. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. <laughs> now, Yehu's fellow officers had not heard the message, but they had taken note of the nervous young man, and they saw him take Yehu aside, and they saw him run away as fast as he could, and they could not help but be curious. So we read this. When Yehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, Is everything all right? Why did this maniac come to you? Yehu said, here is what he told me. This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. And they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. And then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Yehu is king. And so Yehu was declared king by the army. And Yehu got in his chariot and he began to ride. Now the two kings 
Joram and Ahaziah were together in the city of Jezreel, and they had no idea that Jehu was in his chariot, headed their way on a straight line. And so we read this. When the lookout standing on the tower in Jezreel saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram ordered. Send him to meet them and ask, do you come in peace? The horseman rode off to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king says, do you come in peace? What do you have to do with peace, Jehu replied, fall in behind me. When the first horseman didn't return, King Joram sent out a second horseman with the same question, do you come in peace? And Jehu answered the very same way, what do you have to do with peace, fall in behind me. This time, King Joram went out to Jehu himself. This is what we read. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. And the arrow pierced his heart, and he slumped down in his chariot. Now, to pause for a moment, we should understand that this is an unbelievable shot. To be on a chariot, riding as the chariot bumps, and there's a moving man on, and he shoots the arrow, and he pierces the heart. So we're given to understand one of two things. Either Yehu is an unbelievable archer, or God has directed this arrow in much the same way that God directed David's stone to the forehead of Goliath. So, Ahaziah. Ahaziah saw all this. Yehu had just gotten his coffee. He was now caffeinated, cranked up, and ready. So when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled. Yehu chased him, shouting, kill him too. They wounded him in his chariot, and Ahaziah died. Next, Yehu paid a visit on Jezebel. Jezebel had gotten herself. She must have known what was happening. She got herself all dolled up. She had on her best queenly attire, her best bib and tucker. She put on eye makeup, big hair, and red lips, and she stood at the top of a tower as Yehu rode his chariot in. As Yehu entered the gate, she asked, have you come in peace? Yehu looked up at the window and called out, who is on my side? Who? Two or three men looked down at him, throw her down, Yehu said. So they threw her down and her blood spattered the wall. There still remained the sons of the kings and the priests of Baal. Yehu made short work of the sons. Yehu sent messages to the, to the leaders of the city of Samaria where the sons were living, telling the city leaders that it was time to clean house of the sons. The city leaders by this time must have been scared spitless of Yehu because by the next morning, every one of the sons was dead, killed by the city leaders. So we read, Yehu struck down all, re all who remained in the house of Ahab until he left none remaining. 
And that left the Baal priests. Yehu sent a message to the Baal priests that he, Yehu, would hold a great sacrifice for Baal and that all the priests should be in attendance. When all the priests were together in the Baal temple, Yehu gave the signal. The doors of the temple were closed, and Yehu's men killed all the Baal priests. The priests had been invited to a sacrifice for Baal, but they did not know that they themselves were the sacrifice. So we read, thus, Yehu wiped out Baal from Israel. And that is true, at least for now. Come back next week. So that is our passage for this morning. Just another sweet little story from the Bible, right? (laughs) Well, maybe not so sweet. To me, this sounds like the script for the next Quentin Tarantino movie. And some of us may be thinking, what in the world is this story doing in the Bible? So how should we think about this story? The key to understanding this story is in this question and the answer. Do you come in peace? Do you come in peace? The kings and Jezebel asked the question. The question is asked and then repeated three times so that this is where we focus our attention to understand the story. And Yehu did not immediately answer, but when Yehu did answer, we see the God logic to the story, which is likely very different from our own logic. So let's start off with the kings and Jezebel. When they ask the question, do you come in peace? They use the word shalom. Some of you know the word shalom. It's, I only know the word shalom and bar mitzvah. That's the extent of my Hebrew. <laughs> shalom is usually translated as, as peace, as it is here. But in the Bible, there are several layers to the idea of shalom. So first, shalom can simply mean the absence of conflict. So when Israel and a warring tribe signed a treaty to end their conflict, the word shalom is used in the Old Testament to describe the end of war or the absence of conflict. And that is what it appears that the kings mean and Jezebel mean means when they ask Yehu, do you come in peace? They're asking, do you plan to give us a fight? Are we going to have a battle here? But the word shalom, as used in the scripture, also means much more than the absence of conflict. So first, shalom is the absence of conflict, but shalom is also means a universal thriving, flourishing, wholeness, delight, When the word shalom is used, it means that the world is as it ought to be. In shalom, creation and humankind are in harmony with each other. In shalom, relationships are right. If we lived in shalom, we would see strong marriages, secure children, communities in which all are included. We would see men and women respect each other. We would see nations and races treasuring their differences. And there is yet a third layer to the idea of shalom. It is the absence of conflict. It's universal flourishing and and thriving. But it is rooted in right relationship with God. In the Bible, God is the source of shalom. 
For instance, in the book of Numbers, we read that God directed the priests to offer a blessing, a benediction to the people of Israel. And it's probably familiar to you. You've heard it. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom, right? Give you peace. So who's the actor here? Well, it's God, right? It's God who blesses you. It's God who keeps you. It's God who's gracious to you. And he's the one who gives you peace. So when Yehu is asked, do you come in shalom? This is what Yehu says. How can there be peace as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Yehu says this because shalom... Peace requires a spiritual context. Before there can be peace, there must be a change in the spiritual life of Israel, and that requires a house cleaning. So why is this story in the Bible? Well, I believe this story is in the Bible to instruct us that God hates idolatry, and we should hate idolatry too. What's the problem in Israel? Well, Yehu tells us it's the idolatry of Jezebel. So the first step in understanding this passage is to understand what idolatry is. To many contemporary people, the idea of idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing before statues of wood and stone. I don't do that. Most Western Americans Most 21st century Americans don't do that. I don't have a little shrine in a corner of my house at which I bow down before. So I don't have a problem with idolatry, do I? Well, the concept of idolatry is much more subtle than worshiping objects of wood and stone. Corbett Heimberger said last week that when you take any created thing and you orient your life around it, it becomes an idol. That which we most trust that which we obey, that to which we offer our allegiance and our obedience, that is our God. And by this measure, 21st century people have idols. So here's what we're going to do this morning. To understand how 21st century people have idols, we're going to do an idol clinic together. Okay? So we're going to talk about several iconic American figures that I think you might sort of recognize the names have been changed to protect the innocent. So, and I'm going to ask you for some help. So I'm going to ask you to please like, yell out in church. It's okay to do that. Okay. So I, I'm going to ask for your help. I know I'm looking around. This looks like a pretty sharp group, and, and I know you all can do it. So here are three iconic Americans. So I, American icon number one is a basketball, college basketball coach. He has almost 900 career wins. He's in the top 10 most winning coaches on all the college basketball coaching lists. But our coach has gotten himself into trouble with the NCAA authorities because for a number of years he used academically ineligible players. He was much higher on the wins list, but he and his team and his school had to forfeit over 100 wins because of the eligibility problems. No names, please. After the eligibility scandal, he said that he would resign as the coach of the team, but he has not. In fact, he is age 72, and he says, I would like to coach. 
No, that's not really what he said. He said, I got to coach six or seven more years. That would put him at age 78, and he's going to be recruiting 18-year-olds. So do you think he, call, he hears the call of something, perhaps that is alluring to him? What do you think might be of importance to this individual? Win- winning, right? Wins. Work my way back up that list. What else goes with being a college basketball coach? Money, prestige. He's a public figure, right? So the question is, how many wins would be enough to bring shalom to our college basketball coach? Okay, cultural icon number two. This is an extended family, not an individual, an extended family of great physical beauty. They are internationally famous for being famous. (laughs) They have their own television reality show. They are the queens of social media. They have been on the covers of untold numbers of magazines. Sadly, we have to report that the members of the family have actually had very little success in staying in romantic relationships, which is hard to take in with all this physical beauty. In fact, of 10 marriages in the family some years ago, there was only one that was still intact and had not ended in divorce or separation. What do you think calls out to this beautiful family? Money? What was it? Fame? The, the, the potential for having a perfect body, right? Photo ops. Photo ops, that is right. So the question is, how many magazine covers, how much public attention does it take to bring shalom to this family? Cultural icon number three is someone who has made a fortune in sports franchises and real estate. He's high on the Forbes list of the wealthiest people in our nation. He recently bought a ranch of over 500,000 acres, 500,000 acres, which moved him on the list of the people which own the most land in our country from about number 10 to about number 5. There were tenants on this ranch property with houses on the ranch, that they were leasing, and shortly after the purchase, they were evicted, even though many of them had nowhere to go. So what things do you think might be most alluring to our sports and real estate tycoon? Money, power, control. control. Move up the list, right? So the question is, how many acres is enough to bring shalom to a sports and real estate tycoon? So about this time, I hope that you're not just sort of taking refuge in the fact that you don't have a lot of land, you've never been on the magazine cover. I hope that what you're doing is asking yourself, do I have idols in my life? Do I have things that call out to me and try to allure me? We should know that in the Bible, God condemns idolatry in the strongest possible terms. I did a search this week on the word idol, the word idolatry, and I found some 220 verses in the Bible on idolatry, 30 pages of printout, and here's some things that I found. There are about 20 commands, direct commands, not to engage in idolatry, including the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, and the adjective used 
Adjectives used by God to describe idols are words like detestable idols, corrupt idols, worthless, useless idols, vile, abominations, foolish. God clearly hates idols, but we ought to pause a minute and ask why God is so exercised. Why is he so angry about idols? And one way to understand God's anger about idols is that idolatry breaks shalom. Okay? God is angry about idols because idolatry breaks shalom. So we're going to look at a couple of the ways that idols are destructive, the way that idols break shalom. First, we're going to look at Israel in the time of Yehu, and then we're going to look briefly at 21st century people. So historically, Baal was a god of the Canaanites. The Canaanites were the people who lived in the land before the Jewish people arrived from Egypt. The Canaanites believed in Baal as a fertility god. And the god of fertility was supposed to deliver large crops and big families. Those big families could harvest and plant those big crops. These people lived as subsistence farmers. And they were never far from the edge of starvation because of droughts or floods or plagues or pests. And so a God who offered plentiful crops and big families was very attractive. Now, before the Jews arrived in the land, they had been in Egypt for hundreds of years where they made bricks and participated in big building projects. They didn't know nothing about farming. And they were not sure that their God knew anything about farming. And they wanted a God who did know about farming. So the Canaanites had a very pragmatic approach to worship. They wanted abundant harvests. So at hilltop shrines, they indulged in any practice that they believed would encourage their gods to grant fertility and growth. So male and female prostitution was an integral part of their worship practices. Their worship was really little more than orgies with a patina of religiosity. They also participated in acts of child sacrifice. And the rationale was that child sacrificing my child was a statement of faith to my God. And so the God, a fertility God, would reward my sacrifice by giving me large crops and yet more children. So here is what one commentator has written about Canaanite Baal worship. Canaanite worship was socially destructive. Its religious acts were pornographic and seriously damaging to children. It had a low estimate of human life. It suggested that anything was permissible, promiscuity, murder, or anything else in order to guarantee a good crop at harvest. It ignored the highest values both in the family and in the wider community, love, Loyalty, purity, peace, and security, and encouraged the view that all these things were inferior to material prosperity, physical satisfaction, and human pleasure. A society where those things matter most is self-destructive. Now, if that's true, if idolatry really leads to this, this kind of self-destruction, you would think you would have to ask yourself, how did I get here? right? Is there anything wrong with plentiful harvests? Of course not. Anything wrong with big families? We turn a good thing into an idol, and the idol breaks shalom. So you can see why God hates idols. 
So let's talk for a moment about 21st century people, and we're going to go back to our three American icons, the basketball coach, the beautiful media family, and the tycoon. So do you think that if they respond to the call of that which is most alluring to them and make those things not just good things but idols, will they find shalom? I think pretty obviously not. If the coach makes wins his idol... Can he ever have enough wins? If the beautiful family makes media covers their idol, will they find shalom? Can they ever get enough Twitter feeds about them? If the tycoon makes acres an idol, can he get enough? There are problems in the 21st century with idol worship. So first of all, I can never get enough to be content. Frequently, my... Growth is external, and it's on how, on how I rank on lists. My growth is not in relationships. My growth is not in character, and those are the things that are truly satisfying and important to people. And also, I will do whatever I need to do in order to get myself to that idol. So I will play ineligible players. I will evict tenants on my property. I will cheat on my husband for the next lover it just never ends. Let's talk, go back to Yehu and let's talk about him for just a moment. What should we think of Yehu? So at the end, so we're told very little about what happened during Yehu's reign. He reigned for 28 years. We're told, really told very little after he came to power. But this is the summary of his life. The Lord said to Yehu, you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do. Yet, Yehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he caused Israel to commit. So Yehu gets this mixed review. First, God is pleased with Yehu for cleaning out the house of Ahab, ending the worship of Baal, and turning Israel back toward Shalom. But Yehu also didn't actually go far enough. That is, he failed to do all that he could have done in that he continued Jeroboam's practice of worshiping the golden calves. So let's talk a little bit about how this applies to our lives in the here and now. So first of all, if we want to live in Shalom, and we do, right? That's our the heart of almost every person in the world is to live in thriving and flourishing. We must identify and remove idols from our lives. And identifying idols is hard work. I've sort of given you cartoon people in which it's easy to identify idols, but idols are actually much more subtle in our lives. So Daryl Mady said a couple of weeks ago that identifying our idols requires us to be mindful It requires that we spend time with God, asking him to reveal our hearts to ourselves. So we've got two tools this morning that I hope will help you to identify idols and perhaps to help us. So first of all, if you look in your bulletin, there is a card. That card says that the title is Uncovering Idols, and we have given you some questions there that we would suggest that you spend some time looking at and examining your own heart. So these will help you to identify, we hope, what it is that actually has your heart. So, for instance, the first one is, what are you most afraid of? So take our beautiful family. 
What do you think they would be most afraid of? Old age? Saggy bodies that go with it? The media turns its attention elsewhere? That's kind of a good diagnostic question, right? What are you most afraid of? Let's go down to number seven. How do you define yourself to people? Is it something along the lines of, I'm the second winningest college coach in history? I have the biggest land holdings in North America? Well, if it's something external that you use to define yourself and not your relationship to God, you should be aware of that. Number nine, what do you brag about? I brag about my new ranch. Number 10, what do you want the most? My next new ranch. So, so th this is a good diagnostic tool. This, so we hope that you'll use this. We have also given you a, a we've, we've put together a poll this morning. So we're, we're halfway through our series. The series is, of course, on the lives of these kings, but there's also a theme which runs through this, which is idolatry. So here's the question. Get out your little mobile device, and we would like you to text to us and tell us what you think. Where are, where are you in your thinking about this issue? So the, the question is, what idols do you find most alluring in your life? Okay, and you can text your response to the telephone number. You can do that anytime before Thursday if you want to do it right now. That's great. You'll see that if you want to take home the bulletin so that you've got the phone number, it's at the back of the bulletin. We would love to interact with you. We'd like to hear what you're thinking. And Daryl Mady will preach next week. And if there is some things that we hear from people that kind of run through, we'll know what to preach on. And, and Daryl can interact with some of what we hear. So we'd encourage you to do that. So that's, that's, um, so let's talk about Yehu for just a minute and we'll, 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 we'll close. So I, I just hope that the story of Yehu is an encouragement to you for self-examination. What is it that has your heart? Who is it that has your heart? Because on that answer to that question rides shalom, the peace in your life. So let me pray for us and we'll close. Uh, Lord, we know that the story of Yehu is a difficult one, but it reminds us that you have made us to live in peace, peace with each other, peace with you, and we look around and see so few people who actually have held that peace, who have that peace. And so, Lord, we have to confess that we give our hearts to created things. We don't just keep them good things. We make them idols. And we trust them instead of trusting you to provide what we need, what we want. And so, no wonder you hate idolatry. Help us to know, Lord, when we are in danger of giving ourselves to created things we ask you please to change our hearts to pursue you only, that you would be our only vision, the only thing that we care about. And we pray this in your name. Amen.